1: Welcome to New Books in African-American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to University of Pittsburgh professor Marcus Rediger. And we'll be speaking to him about his newly published book um, through Beacon Press called The Fearless Benjamin Lay, The Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rediger.
0: Thank you, Adam. It's good to be with you.
1: Very good, and so you know. Um, once again, thank you for um for coming on to the show. It's definitely an honor and a pleasure to have you on. And um, if you don't mind, would you be able to give us a a little bit of a of a how did you get into this particular story about Benjamin Lay? Because I feel like not as many people know about him, but his importance should be more
0: uh, and better understood. I couldn't agree more, Adam. I First discovered Benjamin Lay about 20 years ago, maybe a little longer, when I was working on uh, a different book, uh, one I wrote with Peter Linebaugh entitled The Many-Headed Hydra, Sailors, Slaves, Commoners, and the Hidden History of the Revolutionary Atlantic. And we were interested in how slave revolts generated breakthroughs in abolitionist thought. And as it happens, in the Atlantic, if you look at this over a long period of time, uh, there are these intense cycles of rebellion. You get one in the 1730s, one in the 1760s, one in the 1790s, one in the 1830s. So we were looking at uh, the first of these in the 1730s, and it so happens that was the decade in which Benjamin Lay published a very radical abolitionist book. Uh, The title was uh, All Slave Keepers That Keep the Innocent in Bondage Apostates. In other words, he was saying anybody who held a slave was really not a proper Christian. Uh, And he made some uh, very powerful arguments uh, quite early. This book is published in 1738, arguments about why slavery has to be abolished immediately. So once I uh, discovered Benjamin Lay, you might say, and once I learned more and more about him, I thought to myself, this guy really deserves his own book. So it took me a while. I wrote several other books in between, but I finally came back around to giving him uh, what he deserves. And I do agree with you. He is an important historical figure. He's almost completely unknown, and we need to bring him back.
1: And this is one of the first steps to make that happen. So, once again, we appreciate you coming on. My pleasure. Absolutely, absolutely. And so, um, getting into the, the 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 breath of the book, um, so as far as how his life begins, right, you know, he, he's definitely someone who has an interesting start to his life, um, especially in his early years. So, could you Start with us there? Yes.
0: Benjamin Lay is born in a small village in England, a place called Copford. It's in Essex, England, which is about 60 miles uh, northeast of London. He's born into a humble farm family. His uh, parents and his grandparents are Quakers. Uh, He becomes a Quaker. Uh, This is a a very significant uh, radical group that emerged in the 1640s and 1650s, uh, within the English Revolution. Benjamin, early in his life, uh, becomes a shepherd. Uh, He always loved uh, sheep and lambs. Uh, Later on, he becomes a sailor. Even though he was uh, very short, he was uh, a dwarf, by the way, as you've mentioned. He was barely four feet tall. He was apparently very strong and very able, so he worked for years as a sailor, and uh, he he became a very, shall we say, militant Quaker. He was someone who believed that the Quaker uh, community had fallen away from their origins during a much more radical time in the English Revolution. So he always tried to channel the more radical ideas of the founders of the Quakers and this is kind of the core of his beliefs which will eventually set him on a path to becoming one of the first abolitionists.
1: That wow that's tremendous and so you know you talk about him you know growing up in Essex and um becoming a sailor that that sailing network um of abolitionists and and really those you know, a lot of times in the work that I've done, it's a lot of uh, the the early African American abolitionists or African diasporic abolitionists were sailors and and or people who, um, you know, with some of the first slave narratives really were, came out of that tradition too. So, and and so it's interesting reading about Benjamin Lay's work um, as a sailor and and kind of how, you know, sometimes when you think about you're fighting against almost like an invisible monster, but it's like for people like Benjamin, no, they've actually seen it, and and you and you talk about that at, uh, a lot as well.
0: You know, Adam, it's it's a very interesting point you make because uh, I I do believe it's true that the first six autobiographies written by people of African descent in English uh, had all been sailors. So so there's a link between seafaring and literacy on the one hand, but there's also this experience of the culture of working sailors. Now, we've got to remember that back in this period, in the uh, early 1700s, when Benjamin Lay was working as a sailor, it was very common for ships' crews to be extremely diverse. Uh, That's where the phrase, the motley crew, comes from. So on any given ship, any deep sea sailing ship, you might have Uh, sailing out of uh, London, where Benjamin himself worked, you might have three or four Englishmen, three or four Irishmen. You might have a Greek. You might have a Swede. You might have a couple of people of African descent. They might be Africans or they might be African-Americans. So there was a work community in which people really had to cooperate. Now, part of this uh, was the very famous thing that sailors did Uh, in spinning yarns, in telling stories. And we know that Benjamin Lay's first introduction to slavery lay in hearing his shipmates talk about the experience of slavery. He he actually had some uh, shipmates who themselves had been slaves in the past. uh, And he also heard stories of people who had worked on slave ships. Now, we don't know exactly what stories he heard, but we know that the thing that made the biggest impression uh, on Benjamin Lay were these stories about the violence committed against women during the middle passage of the African slave trade. So basically, he himself never sailed on a slave ship, but he knew people who did, and he basically learned about the horrors of the slave trade firsthand. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. And that... And and that kind of vivid understanding of you know kind of the way that uh, some of the men would characterize what happened on their slave ships, probably I, I would say definitely radicalized him. Uh, would you say?
0: I, I definitely would. It it basically opened his heart to the suffering that was so central to the Atlantic slave trade. And then of course there's another major experience in Benjamin Lay's Lee, life that, that seals that experience, that really does take him to a new level of understanding uh, and commitment in the cause of anti-slavery. He and his wife, Sarah Lay, who was also, I should mention, uh, a little person, and also, like Benjamin, became an abolitionist. They moved from England, where they had both lived up until that time, uh, to Barbados uh, in the Caribbean. And Barbados in the early 18th century uh, was the leading slave society in the world. This was the uh, this was point zero of the sugar revolution. This is where uh, a, a wealthy master class had grown uh, uh, stunningly wealthy off the labor of an army of enslaved Africans. So, Benjamin and Sarah Lay moved to Bridgetown, Barbados, and they opened a little shop on the waterfront. And they were going to sell, you know, things, just modest day to day type things, to sailors and to artisans uh, who worked on the waterfront. But I think what they didn't understand was that a huge number of Africans worked on the waterfront, too. And then every Sunday, very many enslaved Africans from the countryside around Barbados would come into the town to trade. Uh, And Benjamin in Barbados saw the horrors of slavery uh, very, very uh, uh, up close and personally. He saw people, for example, uh, stagger into his shop, uh, dying of hunger. He saw people uh, tortured, literally tortured. He went to the uh, sugar factories and he saw how people were treated. He saw the lash. He saw people being beaten, being flogged. He saw people being executed. So, so the tremendous horror of slavery really hit him and his wife Sarah fully in the face. Uh, and, and he had a tremendously sympathetic reaction. Uh, so, so I would emphasize uh, probably the most important thing that in Benjamin Lay's life, in terms of how he became an abolitionist, was getting to know enslaved people personally and seeing what their struggles were, seeing how the system was so deeply violent. Uh, this really changed his life. So, in 1718, which is very, very early, this is. Uh, Three generations before an abolitionist movement uh, emerges, Benjamin Lay, by that time, is already absolutely opposed with every fiber of his being to the institution of slavery. He is a committed abolitionist before practically anybody else. But of course, the first abolitionists are always the enslaved people. And he's learning from them. He's basically becoming their ally in this great struggle to end this evil institution.
1: Right. And, and I think that's the part that's, that's so awesome about learning about uh, Benjamin Lay was i had read, um, I had actually come into contact with Benjamin Lay when I was reading um, Manisha Sinha's um, uh, The Slave's Cause. And so, uh, you know, right. Absolutely. And so she, um, she, she had a portion um, on Quaker abolition in um, kind of like that revolutionary abolitionist uh, period that she spoke about and so that was my first foray and so when I saw um when I when I found uh, your book I was like man we got to get him on the show because this you know because I, I, I had seen um, a blurb actually on on social media about the book actually and uh, the the as, as you probably did so so uh, so eloquently on, on purpose uh, the the title kind of kind of gets you it's like the fearless benjamin lay you know and you uh juxtapose that to the quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist and so to me i thought that that was it just looked good like the aesthetics were really cool so like once you got internal with it it was like wow and you find out you know when you think about things like a uh like being a vegetarian right he was he was someone he he really cared About not only humanity, but really the world once you bring it to, you know, once you read about what he said about uh, uh, being someone who I guess now I don't know if they, you know, the term might not have been as as there as as it is now, but he was someone who ate, you know, we would consider a vegetarian. So I think that was pretty profound in that particular time period.
0: Definitely was. And uh, I, I would agree with your observation about Manisha Sinha's book, by the way, The Slaves Cause, I would highly recommend it. And she does write quite a bit about the early Quaker abolitionists who are among the most important allies that enslaved people have uh, in this broader struggle against slavery. But what one thing that really makes Benjamin Lay unusual is that he was not only an early abolitionist, he was not only the first person, for example, to refuse to consume any commodity produced by slave labor. Now, that will actually become a major part of anti-slavery movements in the later 18th and 19th centuries. He's the first to do it. He says we must be conscious of the conditions under which these uh, innocent-looking commodities were originally produced. The, the idea is a lot like uh, the movement against sweatshops today. Think about the people who are making these things. So Benjamin Lay says, every time you drop a cube of sugar into your tea, it's like you're consuming the blood of enslaved Africans, because sugar is is made with their blood. So So anyway, he's got these very radical ideas, but... He also has a broader vision in which he says, we must abolish slavery, we must also stop violence against animals, we must stop capital punishment, we must live in a different way. And His way of doing this was to to basically uh, make all of his own food and to make all of his own clothes. Uh, He lived in a cave. He, he basically tried to live outside the capitalist marketplace because he said, if you, if you participate uh, in trade and buy clothes and shoes and leather goods and things like that, you are contributing through your complicity to the oppression of other people. And, and this is a very modern idea, uh, Adam. Uh, it, this is something that people are just now really starting to think about and it's remarkable to me that Benjamin Lay is thinking about these things 300 years ago. He says, for example, that a lot of the problems that the world was experiencing in his day, uh, especially the wars and violence, he says a lot of this originates in the way human beings treat animals. So he was a, a committed vegetarian. Uh, in fact, he was very nearly a vegan by uh, today's standards. I think the only thing, he he would occasionally uh, eat honey because he loved, uh, he he was a beekeeper and he loved the bees. He loved watching their society uh, and the uh, the way they worked. But he has just this remarkable set of very modern ideas. And I think that's one reason why it's very useful for us to remember him now.
1: Right, and I think that that's so profound because when you also look at um, his, he, he disrupted a lot of, um, I, I guess in the present at least, he kind of disrupts our model of of what abolition really also looks like too. Um, so you have, you know, he obviously he's the first revolutionary abolitionist, but also like you said, he just did so many things that would become so i guess relatively normal in the in the more mainstream abolitionist movement but then also what i was thinking was um when when i look at benjamin lay's uh tactics right you know a lot of times when you, when you bring it to the um uh to the abolitionist movement like you know violent nonviolent, or you know are you, are you disruptive are you you know it almost you know it, it's funny i remember um you know when uh, uh bernie sanders was running for president and he was in seattle he had these uh young women from uh, uh black lives matter you know you am know, rushing him on the stage uh to talk more about uh issues pertaining uh to to their platform and i almost under, I almost look at uh uh benjamin Lay kind of in that mold where it's like if you're not speaking my language i might i might come and get you off that stage or at least you know in my particular way kind of you know, get people's attention. And so um, that was kind of a connection I randomly just had, but I just, you know, (laughs) throwing that out there.
0: Well, I think it's absolutely true. Benjamin Lay was all about action. He did not want people just to talk about the things they didn't like. He wanted to take action. He believed that philosophy had to be activist, that you had to take your ideas out into public and you had to act on them. So so let me give you one example, which you, Adam, have read about in the book, but your listeners won't know about. This will give you a very good idea of just how militant Benjamin Lay was. Uh, There was a, a, a big meeting of Quakers in September 1738. This was called the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. Hundreds of Quakers meet, including the wealthiest Quakers, many of whom are slave owners, Now, people today may be surprised to hear that Quakers back in the early 18th century owned slaves, but they did. And this was a very significant matter to Benjamin Lay. So there's this big meeting. He goes to uh, Burlington, New Jersey. He walks about 30 miles on foot. And and by the way, he would always go on foot because he didn't want to exploit horses by, by riding them. He thought that was a mistreatment of poor animal. So he arrives, and he's going to send a big message, not only to the rich Quakers, but to the other hundreds of Quakers who were attending. And so here's how he does it. He dresses in a military uniform, Now, and and he buckles a sword at his waist. And you have to realize that Quakers are already by this time pacifists. Uh, In 1660, they embraced what they called the peace testimony. They reject war, they reject weapons, but here Benjamin Lay is dressing up like a soldier. Okay, He then takes an animal bladder, which was a fairly common way to carry liquids in those days, and he fills it up with bright red pokeberry juice. He ties that off and then puts that filled bladder inside a book. you've seen those books that have secret compartments in them, like a carved out area inside. He puts the bladder inside the book. He closes the book, he throws an overcoat over his shoulders so that no one can see the uniform or the sword or the book. And he goes into this big Quaker meeting uh, and he's gonna he's gonna make a statement. Quakers do not have a formal minister. Uh, that people are supposed to speak as the Spirit moves them. So Benjamin stands up at a certain point, and he says to this large crowd that slavery is the greatest sin in the world. And then he throws off the overcoat, and the, the hall, the Quaker hall, fills with these gasps. People are, are shocked. He then takes the book, and he holds it above his head, and he pulls out the sword from its sheath, And he says, looking at the slave owners, he says, God will take vengeance against those who oppress their fellow creatures. And he's talking about uh, enslaved Africans. Those are our fellow creatures. So he takes the sword, and he runs the sword through the book, and the blood from the bladder comes gushing down his arm, and then he sprinkles it. On the heads of the slave owners, so that everybody will know who the offenders are. And of course, the the Quaker, uh, the wealthy Quakers are absolutely infuriated by this. He's basically tried to humiliate them in public, and he's actually succeeded. So a group of these Quakers surround him, and they grab him up, and they they pick him up, and they literally throw him uh, violently out into the streets. And they hope that that's the last of it. But it turns out Benjamin Lay is not through with them yet. Uh, it had been raining that day, and so he decides to go back to the main door of the Quaker meeting and to lie down in the mud, so that every single person leaving that meeting is going to have to step over his body. So, so here's the point: no business as usual, no justice. No peace, right? Benjamin Lay's body. Uh, his one of his alab- one of his uh, mottos that he lived by was, "No justice, no peace." I'm not going away. I'm going to keep fighting you. I'm going to keep bringing this ish- issue up, and you are not going to be able to escape it.
1: Wow. Yeah that 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 kind of story for someone who is speaking literally truth to power and a and and really embodying. What putting your body out on the line for a cause really is about, too. Um, and so, you know, when I think about Benjamin Lay's uh, actions, you know, they're definitely actions that you know cause a stir. And he he was definitely someone who, when we talk about someone who's principled, um, you know, and and when when I think about people who are principled and who really go to the farthest ends of what it means to be about your politics, I would say he's definitely someone who's, who's like that. And who I think many people who are listening to, to this podcast um, are definitely going to be able to get uh, to, to, to learn a lot from as far as those particular abolitionists who um, did definitely did not just talk the talk. And, but you know, he definitely walked the walk. And as you would say, he, he's about, he's about, he's about the action. He's about that. He's about that action.
0: And so, he, he, he definitely is, Adam. And, and I'd just like to emphasize a couple of things that you said. Uh, first of all, uh, speak truth to power. This is, this is one of the main principles of Benjamin Lay's life. He actually got this from reading ancient philosophy. Uh there's a, a figure in ancient Greece named Diogenes, who was very, very famous for speaking truth to power. He, he he sort of dressed down Alexander the Great one day, just to give you an example. And the idea is that you must be fearless, right? You must look powerful people right in the eye and tell them the truth. And and this and this is exactly what Benjamin Lay sought to do uh every day of his life. He was really uh And and that's related to the second point. One of the things we can learn from Benjamin Lay is about the nature of commitment. Because he he did live his principles. Uh, He suffered for them. He was disowned by the Quaker community four different times. In other words, he was so disruptive and so insistent that they address these moral and political issues like slavery, that a lot of the big men led these campaigns to have him kicked out. And he was kicked out, and that was actually very painful to him because he loved the Quaker community, at least the part of it that didn't own slaves. So he suffered for his beliefs, but he never, ever wavered in his commitment. And this, I think, is something that... uh, uh, is very instructive for our own times,
1: right? And 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 that's true because sometimes and a lot of times when you are someone who uh, has politics that you know go against the mold, then fortunately or unfortunately you will have to pay certain consequences for for that. But um, in in the in the in the life of Benjamin Lay, you know he was someone who you know. Especially when you have uh, his wife, too, who is also an important figure in the book, who he really just, you could tell that he really loves her. And, you know, he
0: loses a lot when she is gone as well. That's right. She predeceased him by uh, 24 years. And this was a, a terrible, terrible loss. But uh, she, she was a, a remarkable person in her own right. She was very charismatic. Uh, she, her methods were different. Uh, she was not as disruptive as Benjamin, although she always defended him whenever he made these points in dramatic ways at Quaker meetings. Uh, she was a person who was uh, uh, very spiritual, was known to be a great comfort to other people, uh, warm, caring uh, and, and like I say, every bit as committed uh, as Benjamin to uh, opposing the institution of slavery. In fact, it was an experience that she had, which was very crucial to their decision to leave Barbados. She had gone to visit two Quakers uh, a little north of where they lived in Bridgetown. And when she arrived at their home, she saw this horrific sight she saw uh, uh, an african man uh someone who was enslaved uh hanging in the air uh suspended with a, a pool of blood on the ground below him and uh sarah Lay, who was very uh, uh tender hearted mm-hmm. as benjamin as benjamin put it was just so shocked she she was literally Kind of struck dumb by the sight. She couldn't, she was just paralyzed in, in horror. And she ends up finally recovering a bit and going inside to speak to these Quakers and saying, What is going on? And, and they said to him, to her, uh, that man ran away from the plantation and now he must be punished in order to treat him and all of the other slaves a lesson. Uh, and she was horrified that they would justify this barbaric practice. So when she goes back to, to Bridgetown, she says to Benjamin, uh, we can't stay here. Uh, this, this, is, this violence is just too horrible. Now, the other thing that she and Benjamin did in Bridgetown was to feed the hungry. They had a kind of pastor's concern, and they would invite uh, enslaved people to their home and prepare these big meals on Sundays. And, and the word got out that this was happening, and more and more people began to show up. And at these meetings, of course, Benjamin and Sarah would denounce the slave system. And then, of course, the, the slave owners found out about it. I mean, you can't hold um, you know, meetings involving hundreds of people without it getting out. So they then started pressuring Benjamin and Sarah Lay to leave. They actually sought to banish them from the island because they were too opposed to the central institution of slavery. Uh, as it happens, Benjamin and Sarah were ready to leave anyway because of the, uh, the horror just of, of seeing and living in Barbados. So they did finally leave in 1720, but they carried with them for the rest of their lives, the struggles of those Afro-Barbadian people, uh, and they committed their lives to trying to end the institution that oppressed them.
1: Right, and and that, and and th- really, when I think about you know, especially you know, we're in um, Women's History Month and and such like that, and hearing these stories about um, about how those sites of of slavery, you know. Affected some in in radically different ways. And so sometimes i think about, wow, just just think about the moment that she would have seen that particular sight of the man hanging and thinking that there are those who conducted that action that saw that that was just 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 normal. But then there's also those who, like the the lay family saw. That no, that this is this is profoundly wrong, um, and and every now and again when you do any public history work, um, you especially pertaining to slavery, you'll get those those uh, oos and ahs when you start to talk about you know particular sites of slavery, and sometimes people are like, oh my gosh, you know I, I cannot believe people would actually do that, but then you kind of think like it for there to be an institution that would run as long as slavery did, then. You have, both, you have both sides and folks in the middle of that. And uh, thankfully uh, for, for the conception of this book, the Lay family were definitely far, far away from that kind of politics.
0: Well, the, the, here, here's the point, Adam, which I would just emphasize in what you said. Almost all people of Euros, European descent made peace with slavery. Now, some uh, people owned uh, human property. Right, I mean, but lots of other people who did not own human property still supported the institution, and and Benjamin Lay recognized this, and he saw he he basically sought to change the minds and the hearts and minds of as many people as he possibly could. But I, I cannot emphasize strongly enough that uh, the complicity with slavery. In that day was extraordinary, uh, and it was extraordinary even among the Quakers. Now, now Benjamin did believe that slowly over time, as his ministry against slavery uh, accelerated, that more and more people were starting to oppose it, but they were afraid to speak out. So his, his idea was, uh, "I've got to be. I've got to 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 be the tongue." of those people who can't speak for themselves, and I've got to encourage others to stand up and fight back." So so this was basically the task he set for himself, to to, to wage the battle. Sometimes he felt very lonely as he was doing it. He felt like he was the only one willing to stand up, and in a lot of instances, that was true. He was the only one. It was kind of him against the world. but uh, but slowly he is beginning to win slowly more and more people are starting to think that he was right uh so i think this is uh this this is this is really very important but we cannot underestimate as you say the power of the institution of slavery you know i wrote this book called uh the slave ship a human history this is about uh, the slave trade, the British and American slave trade in the uh, sort of the long 18th century, sort of 1700 to about 1807, 1808. Uh, this, is a, this is a case study in extreme violence and terror that was used by slave traders to control the Africans they transported to the New World. But here's the point. This went on, Adam, for almost four centuries almost four centuries. Now, most extremely violent uh, instances in human history are relatively short, like the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, uh, six million people killed in six years. But the African slave trade went on for hundreds of years. And the reason why it did was because it was so extremely profitable. And I don't just mean to the slave traders, I mean to the plantation owners and to the entire system of Atlantic capitalism. So if you are going to speak out consistently against something that is that powerful, you are going to receive extremely powerful resistance. That's why you've always got to be willing, as Benjamin Lay was, to speak truth to power.
1: Right. And and that is, uh, and w- once you put it into that greater context, it it makes what Benjamin Lay did and an abolitionist after him, but especially those who were at the vanguard, largely, um, you know, because as you said, as you mentioned before, you know, uh, in, the enslaved as abolitionists is definitely something that Benjamin Lay saw. Um, but as far as those who uh, were non-enslaved, right, uh uh, uh abolitionist you know uh Benjamin Lay was at the at the vanguard he was definitely at that beginning foray and so that's why um when we talk about people like um Anthony Benezet and when we talk about um uh, William Lord Garrison and and uh, Thompson out in the in, in 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 the British Isles and and all these different abolitionists um and the Grimke sisters going out into the uh later portion of the 19th century, you know, they have predecessors, they have those who are in their tradition, and um, whether or not you know, and, and that kind of goes into people saying that you know, even Garrison's like the first revolutionary abolitionist and revolutionary in the you know, in uh, not the, just the uh era sense, but just in a larger sense, it's like. Mm, mm, Okay, uh, maybe, maybe not. You know, maybe read uh, the fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary ab- abolitionist, and you'll, you'll probably come out with a different perspective than that, um, or at least <laughs> well, let, uh, an me, added one. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> let, let me add something right there because w- one of the reasons I wrote this book uh, was, was basically to say that the abolition movement is older than we thought, uh, in its origins, it's more radical than we thought. And of course, these are reasons why a lot of very good historians of abolition have left Benjamin Lay out. He did not really fit the story of abolition as they wanted to tell it. And they wanted to present it as a uh, basically as the work of white middle class uh, and upper class men who became enlightened and decided that slavery must be abolished. Well, the Benjamin Lay story contradicts all that. This is, this is a story of him uh, meeting and working with enslaved Africans from the bottom up, not from the top down with people like William Wilberforce, the British aristocrat who gets all the credit for leading the anti-slavery movement. This is a different sort of movement, uh, much more radical, much more confrontational. Uh, and, and I think that uh, Benjamin Lay can teach us that this abolition movement itself was much more complicated than, than we have understood. I think this is really one of the important things about him. He's from the wrong class. You know, He's not. he doesn't really fit the profile of an abolitionist. And yet, he arguably did more than practically any of the others. And he certainly had one of the most radical visions uh, of both uh, how and why slavery must be eliminated if if anyone was to have uh, a decent and better life
1: right and 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 like you said when people don't fit the mold that you want them to be when you especially when you put you know historiographies together um then some, some a lot of times people get left out um you know civil so rights movement you see someone like Claudette Colvin uh did something you know just as important as Rosa Parks but for, for many different reasons, uh, a lot of them being her skin complexion, her uh, class, uh, makeup, she didn't she did she didn't make the page and um and then so a, a similar story uh, in obviously a different context I uh, definitely think um, speaks to Benjamin Lay here and um also something that I was thinking about as a as a personal question um, when it comes to the legacy of Benjamin Lay, we, we're kind of talking about that, but even contemporaries of of um, of Benjamin Lay, how did they uh, take him in as far as, you know, around the time that he died, but also, um, you know, as far as his legacy within that Philadelphia class, that Pennsylvania class of abolitionists?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that happens with Benjamin Lay, I mean, he is... Uh, he does suffer repression at the hands of his fellow Quakers. I mean, they disown him. And we might, Adam, want uh, in a few minutes to get into a, a new subject, which is that two Quaker congregations that disowned Benjamin have now taken him back. And I think this is a, this is a very encouraging uh, development. But uh, he, 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 he did suffer a great deal of persecution. He was, uh, he was laughed at, he was mocked, he was scorned, uh, he, he suffered, uh, and he was then left out of that Quaker community. Now, as the abolition movement developed, as it got stronger, really after Benjamin's death in 1759, some of the more radical abolitionists began to reach back to him and say, look, our movement is old. Our movement contains someone like Benjamin Lay. So there were republications of his biography, for example, in the 1830s by uh, Lydia Maria Child and uh, uh, Benjamin Lundy. So Benjamin Lay is actually recuperated as part of the genealogy of the abolition movement. But then, after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, when American society makes a very racist turn into social Darwinism and really probably, uh, and Jim Crow, I mean, this is the period we're talking about. Then there is a systematic forgetting, not only of abolitionism in general, but especially of its more radical members like Benjamin Lay. So it's really up to us now to bring him back and say and, t- and, and basically tell people what, what can be learned from him now. In other words, uh, we've got to put him back on mm-hmm. the page.
1: Right. And, and definitely, um, you know, that, that's very important because, you know, you, you have two of the important kind of middle stage abolitionists between, you know, the Revolutionary War ending and um, the first couple decades of the 19th century. Um, As the movement is starting to pick up more and more steam um, and really hit its stride, um, you have two very, very important abolitionists who kind of set the foundation for, you know, people like Garrison and Mariah Stewart and um, all these different people um, in the 19th century, in the 1830s and 1840s, um, who reached back for motivation into um, the, the, the uh, uh, 18th century uh, world that Benjamin Lay really lived la- the majority of his life in.
0: Yes, and, and see, here's, an, here's, a, here's a related point. One of the things that people frequently say is, well, in the 18th century, everybody accepted slavery. And this is why we can't really judge Thomas Jefferson by contemporary mm, standards, mm. Example, he was a. Some people say he was a prisoner of uh, the world of slavery. Well, to me, this is totally false. First of all, we know. I mean, if 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 the magnificent scholarship on the subject of slavery has proved anything in the last fifty years, it is that enslaved people themselves never accepted this institution, and they found hundreds of ways to fight back. <clears throat> And it's also at the same time true that even in the Euro American population, you can't say everybody uh, supported the institution of slavery because here is Benjamin Lay and he emphatically refused it. So to say that people who were the contemporaries of Jefferson, to say that people who actually uh, existed before Jefferson, already had a radical abolitionist program. That puts those later thinkers like Washington and Jefferson in a new light. In other words, we know that the ideas were available, they were there, and they rejected them, and they went with their economic interests, and in fact, it was the institution of slavery which allowed them to develop their political ideas. So, Putting Benjamin Lay back in history changes the context for how we evaluate other historical figures.
1: Right, and 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 that's a ve- that's actually a very important point because um, I had a, I had a scholar uh, Kay Wright uh, Lewis on the show um, a couple months ago, and she made um, a particular case in 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 her book um, "A Curse Upon the Nation" about you know the the history of race war and how she talked about decisions. People make decisions, and I love the point that you just made because. You know, Jefferson was someone who he was born into a particular class, but he he himself made decisions that continued that legacy that he was born into and strengthened it and elongated it um, and built institutions based upon, you know, uh, slavery. And so to me, when I think about, um, when I think about, what you just mentioned, Benjamin Lay made decisions. He saw the same thing that people like, like uh, President Jefferson saw, but he came. To, his analysis was different of what he saw, and I think that that is when we talk about uh, you know, like Confederate uh, iconography, and when we talk about the iconography of uh, in our in our public. Life when we walk around, what we see in, in Richmond or in New Orleans or you know, shoot, they got Confederate flags up in New, in New Hampshire, not far from where I am. And so you know, you have these different things. And so at the end of the day, you could just base it off of maybe not "quote unquote" simply, but largely personal decisions. And one of the things about you know uh, a lot of times in government, people say you know personal responsibility. That's something that's really thrown out a lot. Well. Sometimes we need to use that with our historical figures as well, personal responsibility.
0: I agree that people make choices. People have agency within certain limits, of course. Uh, and, and, and we need to understand that. I mean, Benjamin Lay uh, was unusual in, in many ways, but here's one. Almost all of the people who wrote against the institution of slavery before him and I'm talking here about people who had the privilege to publish their thoughts, they almost all said, slavery is terrible, and what masters should do is treat their slaves better. Benjamin says, no, they shouldn't, quote, treat their slaves better, although he, of course, would, as a compassionate person, would always argue for that. He says, the solution to this problem is emancipation. The solution to this problem is to end slavery. It's not a matter of keeping slave owners in place so they can treat uh, people better or worse. Let's end the institution itself, and so that to me is a is a, a really uh, much more radical stand, and, and it's one that we uh, really need to remember.
1: Absolutely. And um, also in the time that we do have left, if you don't mind, I would love to hear more about um, that particular point that you mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, the two churches, uh, the two Quaker churches that expelled uh, Benjamin Lay that are now, um, uh, I think, as you mentioned, that they're uh, rethinking uh, that particular decision. Uh,
0: sure. Uh, happy to talk about that because I find this very heartening because uh, Benjamin Lay is coming back. He is coming back to us, uh, and and he has much to teach. Uh, I, uh, in 2016, was invited to give a talk at the Abington, Pennsylvania Quaker Meeting House. This is a a meeting house just outside Philadelphia. And as it happens, this is the meeting uh, uh, in which Benjamin and Sarah were both members uh, at least uh, members uh, until Benjamin was uh, disowned in 1738. It's also the place, there is a uh, a Quaker burial ground adjacent to the meeting house, and Benjamin and Sarah's bodies are buried there in in an unmarked grave, like all Quakers of their time period. Sarah was buried as a member. Benjamin was buried as a non-member mm-hmm. because he was disowned. Okay, so I'm invited to speak there, and it turns out there are some, a significant number of local people in Abington who do know the story of Benjamin Lay and are very eager to do something about it. So I gave a talk. We had a very good uh, discussion. Uh, a, a conversation begins begins at this, in this Quaker meeting about what should they do? Because what I said to them, my, my, you know, I gave a lot of thought to what I wanted to say in speaking to the Abington Quakers. Uh, I said, uh, at the end of my talk, I said, look, you know, he was right about slavery. You know that, right? And everybody agreed. And I said, "And, and so what if his methods were extreme and he was disruptive? He needed to be disruptive, in order to try to shake people and, and wake them up about this evil in their midst. So the Quakers began to discuss whether he could be readmitted, as I had suggested. And it turns out they they do not have a formal way of readmitting the dead, because you can't really ask somebody whether they want to be readmitted or not. Uh, I feel very confident in saying that I do think Benjamin Lay would definitely have wanted to be readmitted to the Quaker community. He loved uh, Quakerism. So this debate went on for a while. Uh, I went back and gave another talk at the Abington meeting uh, this past October after the book was published. And soon after that, uh, a proposal was made in the Abington-Quaker meeting uh, that they decide by consensus – that Benjamin Lay was a friend of the truth, Uh, even though he was disowned by their meeting, he was a friend of the truth, and that they would now, after these many years, like to affirm their kinship with his spirit. So basically, what they decided to do was to rehabilitate him and bring him back and say, he is part of us, he is part of our history, and we honor and respect him for what he did. Now, independently of that, I got a, 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 an email from a Quaker mm-hmm. in London who happened to belong to a Quaker meeting there that had disowned wow. Benjamin Lay. So they took a similar action. Uh, so now two of the four Quaker groups who have disowned Benjamin Lay have taken him back. Uh, and there's actually going to be a, a grave marker Placed uh uh, where the on the spot where it's believed that Benjamin and Sarah are buried. That's gonna happen uh next month in Abington. So there this is a very important public acknowledgement. Uh Benjamin and Sarah Lay were part of Uh our community. We honor them. And and this is his reentry uh into history. It's also his reentry into our present. And if I may, I would just like to add, I am uh, currently writing a play with a, a dear friend and a distinguished playwright, uh, mm-hmm. Naomi Wallace. Uh, and the, the title of this play is The Return of Benjamin Lay. Wow. So it's really all about this, this, this very same issue. It's going to be a, a one-person play. Uh, it, the, the, the part will be played by a dwarf actor uh, and it will be all about Benjamin Lay's return to history, return to consciousness, uh, return to Quakerism, and how we must now remember him.
1: Wow that that is some tremendous tremendous work and 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 you know this is why writing history is so important because so many times you have opportunities to rehabilitate the image of someone that. really whose image should have never been soiled in the first place. And so when you look at the kind of work that, that you are helping to aid communities that bring back particular figures into their fold who, you know, were very important to their particular communities. This is why history is so important because no other field can really bring people back in this particular way. And so, You know, you're doing that across, you know, across oceans, right? So you're doing this on a Mm -hmm. huge level, which is phenomenal. And then even more, hearing about the fact that you and um, the particular playwright are are uh, coming together to 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 do this particular play, I think is great. And to even go further, um, a lot of discussions in. Um, in spaces uh, of disability and, 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 and especially in acting where you have people playing a particular role, but they do not personally have that role in, in their life. And so to see that you are uh, getting a uh, dwarf actor to play the, in this one uh, person um, uh, a role, I think is profound in so many different levels and uh, definitely a, a great, a great opportunity and also to show how, you know, writing in history can also take you to other places too, which is pretty cool, especially as someone who's uh, going to start a PhD in a, in a couple months.
0: Well, I, I wish you all the best with that. I couldn't agree more, Adam, that uh, history is uniquely positioned uh, to help us think about uh, our present and our future. In other words, we reach back to people in the past because we think they're meaningful to us. Benjamin Lay is very meaningful to me. Benjamin Lay, I think, should be meaningful to people who want to fight for a better world because he was a fighter. He was, in his heart of hearts, a fighter for something better. And I'll tell you something. This debate is going to continue in this country. Who are the proper heroes for a a diverse and multi-ethnic society. What kinds of heroes should we have? Well, and I'll tell you something, if uh, people want to tear down the statues of Confederate generals, I'd be happy to help them put up some statues of Benjamin Lay and Nat Turner and Denmark Vesey and other rebels who have been so central to American history.
1: Absolutely. Hey, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I am right there with you with that. And so um, in the brief time that we have left, you 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 mentioned that you're working on this particular play, but is there anything else that you're uh, working on in, in the future as well? If you don't mind uh, giving us a brief talk about.
0: No, I'm happy to do that. Uh, I, I have, The play is my main concern at the moment. Uh, okay. Naomi Wallace and I have finished a uh, first draft of that play. Uh, we're probably going to do a reading uh, sometime in May in London, working with a uh, – stage director and an actor will then make another round of uh, revisions and then probably send the play around to various theaters to see if anybody wants to produce it. And uh, I, I'm very hopeful that they will. Uh, I do have a history project beyond that. And I, I was thinking about what kind of book I might want to write next. Mm-hmm. And I decided that having spent really 40 years now, studying uh, the life and work of people at sea, whether on merchant ships or pirate ships or slave ships, that, that this would be a suitable subject for me to write about. And I decided that I would do this essentially by making Herman Melville my shipmate. Hmm. I'm going to use Herman Melville's sea novels. He wrote six of them. Melville did, of course, have uh, an experience as a sailor. He he went to sea for several years, which is why he knew so much about uh, ships in the sea. So I'm going to write a book that is kind of a reflection on uh, work at sea, on the oceans themselves as an ecological resource, Mm -hmm. uh, and really try to bring to a certain kind of conclusion a theme that I've been writing about my entire life. Wow.
1: And that both projects sound amazing and definitely ones that, um, especially obviously for the, for the book one, I, I definitely love uh, to converse with you once, once that project comes to fruition. Um, and so uh, definitely uh, Dr. Redeker thank you for uh, sitting down with us today and um, thank you for, for, for bringing so much life and breathing so much great life into uh, the fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. And thank you to Beacon Press for putting, um, for, for for publishing this particular book too, because, um, you know, there the this book is definitely something that we're going to do our best to get out to the masses so that they can go and pick up that book so they can realize uh, how a lot of times things are not brand new. You have those who were great precursors to, a lot of folks who are deemed radical or revolutionary. Um, and that's why I love Benjamin Lay and reading this book, because it's definitely an accessible book as well, which is also important.
0: Well, Adam, I want to thank you. I have really enjoyed talking with you. I appreciate the thoughtfulness of your questions, and I wish you all the best in your Ph.D. studies.
1: All right. Thank you so much, sir. And signing off from New Books in African-American Studies, Adam McNeil and Marcus Rediger.